I'd like to introduce um, our first speaker, our first keynote speaker of this conference, which is Christoph Cornelissen. Um, he is apparently just on his last day um, today of a, a year-long Gerda Henkel um, professorship um, that he held jointly with the Institute and the LSE. And um, he was previously at the University of Kiel in Germany and he's now going back to a Lehrstuhl in Neuere Geschichte at the University of Düsseldorf. He has published um, widely and um, um, wasn't keen for me to read out all his publications, obviously. Um, I'm focusing in particular on those that relate to what he's talking about today, which is something that uh, resulted from his Habil-Schrift on Gerhard Ritter, Geschichtswissenschaft und Politik im 20. Jahrhundert, and also Geschichtswissenschaft im Geist der Demokratie, Wolfgang J. Mommsen und seine Generation, which came out in 2010. Uh, his Forschungsschwerpunkte include British history in the 19th and 20th centuries and the history of German and international historiography. And I'd like to hand over now to Christoph Cornelissen. Thank you. Well, thank you, Anita, for the very kind presentation. And uh, thank you very much again to Stefan Berger for asking me to hold this uh, lecture, even though I'm not sure anymore whether he asked me to hold a keynote lecture or something which the Italians would call something like a piccolo intervento. I think that was what we arranged in, uh, several months ago, and then it turned out to, into something like, well, somehow, somehow you moved me to the front, front of uh, yeah, the agenda, and uh, I ended up as a keynote speaker. But, uh, so I had to inflate a bit of, well, to pump more material into this, into this into, into intervento to make it into a proper keynote lecture. Okay, I'll be talking about um, a phenomenon most of you will be probably aware with, the disgust which came up uh, in, well, at the end of the 1990s about a generation which uh, is normally regarded as one who is at least part responsible for the democratization of West German history. But when historians talk about themselves or their profession, this always entails the danger of some kind of self-marginalization. Would it not be more reasonable, probably that is what many people think, simply to tackle more urgent questions of our day in a historical perspective instead of focusing on a group of people about whom we think we know everything anyway? And even if we don't, does it matter? Well, from the 1990s, historiography began to present an important problem for many people in Germany and interestingly enough, the relevant discussions were not confined to professional historians. They also began to engage wider sections of the German public after the national quality press started reporting on them. At the same time, a wave of new publications came out on the history of our discipline, and this is quite a remarkable large wave. One major reason for this was the breakdown of the German Democratic Republic, which led to many heated discussions, public and academic debates about the role of historians in the era of the socialist dictatorship. This brought with it the almost complete delegitimization of former East German university historians who, with very few exceptions, were forced to give up their posts. It comes as, there, it comes as no surprise that this democratization was accompanied by countless acrimonious debates. To outsiders, 
at least to many, it seemed as if a second, a highly effective purge of the German academic world, of course this didn't remain confined to historians, had been carried out in order perhaps to compensate for the failures of the first political purge after 1945. A second reason for the unusually wide public interest had to do with new findings about the role of well-known West German historians who had played quite an important role in the Third Reich. The meeting of the German Historians Association in Frankfurt in 1998 provided a memorable venue for this debate because one of its central sessions witnessed a series of clashes about whether or not Theodor Schieder, and this is why I handed out this list, all the names will sort of be mentioned in my talk, and I didn't want them to write on a blackboard or to have them uh, on, on these machines which never function. Um, so um, the, the, the debates concentrated rapidly on Theodor Schieder and Werner Konze, thus perhaps, or they used to be called founding fathers of West Germany's rebuilt historical science, and the question whether they had been outright Nazis. But the very strong criticism was not confined to these two individuals alone. On the contrary, as Peter Schöttler, Michael Fahlbusch, and Ingo Haar, to name only a few of the prominent participants in these discussions, convincingly demonstrated tens, if not hundreds, of German, and we shouldn't forget Austrian historians, geographers and academics from other fields had willingly offered their professional knowledge to support the Nazis in realizing their inhuman aims. Many had not even been asked to collaborate, but had volunteered to support a regime which many felt some kind of allegiance to until very late in the war. Widespread disgust at these findings, which obviously challenged the hallowed professional ideals of the historical guild, as it's still, still called in Germany, and its pride in impartiality and rigorous methodological thinking, soon extended to harsh criticism of many historians of a younger generation who, so the argument ran, had neglected to ask their academic teachers about their behavior during the Nazi years. Thus, many of those who were present at the Frankfurt meeting became witnesses to a kind of a historical theatrical act, as I see it, during which well-known historians such as, and you all know the names, Vila, Kocka, the Mommsen brothers, and many others were put, more or less, into the dock and charged with failing to ask the right questions at the right time. The apparent contrast between the self-image of a cohort of whose members regularly claimed to have liberated German historiography from the shackles of a bygone historicism and its immoral tendency always to side with those in power on the one hand and the inability of a rising generation to uncover the collaboration of their own academic teachers with the Nazi regime on the other accounts for some of the bitterness um, which erupted not only in Frankfurt but also in many ensuing debates after 1998. The defendants, as was to be expected, and all or most of you know them, you, many of them are still alive, they did not take long to respond vigorously to these, uh, to these reproaches. At the Frankfurt meeting they had already derided the anachronistic expectation that it was possible, or perhaps we should say seemly, to pose the same questions in the 1950s as in the late 1990s. In an interview published under the telling title Missing Questions, this uh, volume edited by Holz and Jarausch, Versäumte Fragen, Wolfgang Mommsen quite bluntly made clear 
that he himself and the members of his age group had never hesitated to criticize the generation of their academic teachers. The German original runs in die Pfannehauen. And he added, whenever it served our own arguments. He maintained, furthermore, with the support of Wolfgang Schiede and several other well-known 45ers, or we may call them 29ers, I will come back to that later on, that they had expressly asked their fathers, their real fathers, Schieder and Mommsen, and also their academic teachers about their Nazi past, but had never received satisfying answers. Mommsen also insisted that it would be totally wrong to identify Schieder or in part also Konze directly with Nazi policies of extermination. His view was that in the 1930s, Schieder above all, was, uh, or had been driven by resentment of the outcome of the Paris Peace Treaties, which then led him to support the Nazis' political and territorial revisionism, but without falling into line with their anti-Semitic thinking. In the end, however, the younger critics, this is my view of this provisionary end of the debate, the younger critics won the upper hand because they could substantiate their arguments by classical source work. It was as simple as that. They reread everything that had been published during the Nazi years, even though it may have appeared in obscure journals such as Jomsburg, a typical political organ of the new German historiography in this period, and they went to the archives, where they found proof of large-scale complicity between countless German historians and the Nazi regime. The interpretation of this evidence, however, turned out to be anything but unanimous, and it has remained a point for debate to this day. Now, I have dwelt on this point, not because I intend to relive the Frankfurt debates, but because I see the, this controversy as a salient example of a whole series of post-war historiographical debates which clearly demonstrate the importance of generational patterns, whether real or merely construed ones, for the main course taken by West German historiography. In this context, the generation of the 45ers has recently received special attention. This term usually refers to a cohort of West German thinkers, not just historians, of course, born in the late 1920s and early 30s, including numerous well-known names, not only from the field of historiography, but also from the wider world of academic politics and culture, many of whom made a name for themselves through their political and or historical political public interventions. The majority of them belong to a broad left liberal camp but we should not overlook those from the same birth cohorts who were in favor of liberal conservative or even sometimes forthright conservative views right from the very beginning of their academic careers. The exact contours of this generation, however, have remained fuzzy with regard both to their basic political orientation and the precise birth cohorts to be included. In his book, German Intellectuals and the Nazi Past, Dirk Moses subsumes all those born from the early 1920s to 1932 under the heading of 45ers, while others such as Helmut Schelsky, Rudolf Schurken and Arno Klönne in their older studies concentrate either on the Flakhelfer, so the operators of the anti-aircraft cannons who had been born between 1927 and 29, or the even younger ones, the Pimpfe uh, of the Hayat Jugend, uh, which then are well known in Germany under the term of the skeptical generation. Now, to my mind, it is useful to differentiate between a wider and a narrower view of the 45ers, setting the older members of this generation, especially in the field of historiography, 
and those who had seen active military service during the Second World War against the younger ones, whose political activities in the Third Reich were confined to the membership in the Hitler Youth. In the book I recently edited, and it has mentioned it, on the occasion of Wolfgang Mommsen's 80th birthday, um, I used the term the 29ers, and this coincides with others who have done the same, Mary Fulbrook in her article in the same book and also in her book on generations in German history. Um, Habermas has used it uh, for the Darendorf generation. So it's, it's um, a term which needs not to be invented. It's there, it's in the discussion. Now this may at first sight perhaps seem like a glass bead game. A rough survey, though, of their most important historical publications reveals quite easily an interesting division, or perhaps it is more accurate to say differences in the tone of the passages in which they embed the seminal events of 1933 and the following years into the long-term traditions of German history. Basically, the 29ers were much more inclined to speak in their historical works clearly about the burdens of the German Sonderweg, thus setting themselves apart not only from their academic teachers, but also from their older fellow historians of the same generation. Their differences with the latter had already begun when they chose their main fields of research. Of course, as we all know, these choices are influenced by many factors, and it would therefore be absurd to construe determinist pathways. But again, it is noteworthy that several former soldiers who became historians after the war began to research and publish on its history. This applies, for example, to Jürgen Rover, and you find all the names on the list, Andreas Hillgruber, Hans Adolf Jakobsen, Manfred Messerschmidt, while the younger members of this generation, perhaps with the exception of Klaus-Jürgen Müller, shied away from delving into their recent war experiences. Again, a few names might be helpful. Wähler, Berding, Geier, Mommsen and Reinhard Rürup. So many of the well-known 29ers in West German history, perhaps also Darendorf, Habermas, and later on Kurt Sontheimer, none of them published on the Second World War, at least not in the early stages of their careers. And it is difficult to identify obvious traces of their personal war experiences in their later historical writing. Rather, they prefer to use their new positions as young professors at West German universities to ensure the survival of democracy by dealing with other historical topics. And in addition to that, they tried, to, through their intra- and intragenerational duels, and literally duels in print, and at the podium about the meaning of German nationality, also about the burden of the Holocaust and the role of the universities, as Moses argues in his books, to provide a critical intellectual framework in which democratic life could flourish. In brief, to quote Moses, West German democracy is a discursive achievement and the 45ers made it possible, unquote. Now a similar interest in this group is displayed in several other recent ex uh, publications, and I will only give you short references to these uh, publications. Um, noteworthy, perhaps, is Jens Hacke's book on the conservative liberal circle around the philosopher Joachim Ritter, uh, a book published in 2006, and a collection of articles by Franz Walter Kersting, Jürgen Reulicke, and Hans Ulrich Thamer, who in their book on the, uh, the second foundation of the Bundesrepublik of the Federal Republic of Germany, um, speak of a second foundation between 1955 and 70 based on the intellectual interventions of numerous 45ers. So we are 
entering quite a, an intensive or intensively led discussion. Obviously, Karl Mannheim's pioneering analysis of generation is back on the agenda in the wider field of intellectual history, and it may therefore be useful to reflect here at least briefly on why this is the case and why interest in generational questions has revived with such vigor over the past two to three decades. And as Bernd Weisbord is here, the interest is, has, has entered the universities, has entered uh, uh, modern research teams. He has built up a uh, well, what we call a graduate college at the University of, of Göttingen, which uh, centers on questions of generation studies. Now, the first point, this is the first point I shall address now in more detail, and I will then try to show, secondly, how the idea of a common identity began to take shape among the 29ers, because this represents the result, in my view, of a dynamic process which had much more to do with their post with post-war developments than personal experiences in the Third Reich and during the Second World War in particular. And thirdly, I shall outline some of the differences and similarities, and this will be a very rough sketch only between the German representatives, the West German representatives of this generation and members of the same age group in other countries. And this is, I think, a very wide field which needs to be looked into a lot more in detail by others above all. Now, I will come to my first point, the rise of interest in academic generations. Before I approach this, these questions, allow me to begin by making a number of general observations on the boom of historical research on generations. In the German context, this has been of interest to historians and other academics since the early 1980s. From this time on, we can observe a veritable boom in historical writing on generations and closely connected with this, a trend towards writing biographies of intellectuals. In West Germany, Jürgen Reulich and his research project on generations and generationality, something which Generationalität can't be translated, paved the way, but many more were to follow. If I'm correct, the term became more popular after the publication in 1987 of Detlef Poikert's historical survey of the Weimar Republic, because in its first chapter, the author discusses the rule of four different political generations. Although Poikert was well aware of the problems of retrospectively constructing distinct political generations, he emphasized the particular role of members of the First World War so-called front generation born in the 1880s and 1890s, and of those whom he called the superfluous generation, born after the turn of the century, many of whom played a pivotal role in the downfall of the Weimar Republic. All this triggered further debates on what was called the war youth generation of the First World War, many of whom had formed the vanguard of either the communist or the fascist movement in the interwar period. For our topic today, all this is relevant, because in the 1980s, the renewed academic interest in probing questions of generation formation soon focused on the first political generation after 1945, the so-called 45ers. In my view, this timing is no coincidence at all, because life cycles and work cycles began to intersect exactly in this decade. Those who had been born in the 1920s and early 1930s gradually began to give up their places of work. This simply meant that those who had been children or young people in the Third Reich now, in many cases, found more time to reflect publicly on their professional and private careers before and also after 1945. For this reason, it comes as no surprise that the book market began to be flooded, literally, with the work of former Flakhelfer or Pimpfe, the Pimpfe who had been 10 to 14 years old before the end of the war. 
Obviously, much of their interest focused on how and when they had managed to dissociate themselves from an ideology which had perversely dominated their young minds during their childhood or youth. With regard to this major biographical, biographical U-turn, the political scientist von Krokow came up with a highly intriguing formulation as early as 1979. Quote, born in 1927, I belong to the generation of the so-called Flakhelfer. I was old enough to experience the war, the terror and the fall of the Third Reich consciously, but the same t at the same time I was young enough to begin again in you. Unquote. But as already mentioned, Krocker was not the only one of the 45ers to reflect publicly on his role in German history. On the contrary, we can count hundreds of works published during the 1980s, of which Hermann Lübbe's famous, or perhaps to some also infamous, intervention, dating from 1983, represents only the tip of the iceberg. In this much-quoted article, Lübbe explained that the public restraint shown in all attempts to come to terms with the Nazi past during the first two post-war decades was a positive strategy to integrate the former um, Volksgenossen of the Third Reich into West Germany's new democratic political system. This strategy was inevitable, Lübe added, because after the devastating experiences under the Nazis, it was the only way of steering the Germans peacefully into the new political culture of the Federal Republic. Again, personal overtones are obvious in his case. The same holds true for Martin Broschett's famous appeal in the early 1980s, when he called for a historization of National Socialism, which has remained, in my eyes, an ominous expression to the present day. Historization, this is what we are doing all the time. Again, his appeal contains echoes of his personal experiences in the Third Reich, although this was to emerge more clearly only after Nicholas Berg had established that Bouchard had become a member of the Nazi party as late as 1944. Now, although it would be misleading to overemphasize this specific factor, it seems to me quite obvious that in Brochard's case, as in many others from the ranks of German historiography, personal experience, unspoken as well as spoken, played a very important part not only in gearing their research interests towards the wider field of contemporary history, but also in coloring their specific view of the Third Reich and the tone they used in describing this history. The fourth volume of Hans-Ulrich Wehler's Gesellschaftsgeschichte which centers on the Third Reich, and his insistence on Hitler's charisma may well be another case in point supporting this argument. The same could be, say, <clears throat> the same could be said of the 29ers' attempts to modernize German historiography, be it in a theoretical or methodological way. To my eyes, Wolfgang Mommsen's inaugural lecture at the University of Düsseldorf, held in March 1970 with the telling title Geschichtswissenschaft jenseits des Historismus, transcending historicism, can be regarded as a typical product of this rising generation's self-assertion. Obviously, his highly critical diagnosis of German historiography was not shared by all historians of his age, not even by those who had studied or who concentrated on the same period of German history as he did, but at the same time there were many signs of strong support in letters and also in many quotations, especially from the ranks of the 29ers. His inaugural lecture, which is quite uncommon, was published in two editions and began to be widely quoted as a sign of the new generation's mission, historiographical mission. This is basically it. Its language was highly expressive, even dramatic. In the wake of the preceding historical cat uh, catastrophes, Mommsen said, 
his generation had lost its faith in the sense of history. But he also turned his pessimistic diagnosis into an optimistic work plan for the future. If the new generation of German historians succeeded in getting rid of the romantic and idealistic origins of their own discipline and turned to the social sciences, he suggested, they would face a broad spectrum of promising tasks. In short, the analysis of wider social developments was to replace the individualist historicism of their academic predecessors. This call involved a strong emphasis on Max Weber's theories and concepts, something which was to become typical of a number of German 29ers, and the 29 historians in particular. In their case, Weber was to serve both as a shield and a weapon in their attempts to dissociate themselves from a historicism or narrativism which, according to Mommsen and his like-minded fellow historians, had become utterly stale. Now, why was all this bolstered up with such a strong influx of sociolo sociological concepts? The phenomenal rise of sociology into a new kind of academic light discipline, as we might say, can account partly, at least, for this process, but surely this was not all. We must also take into account the major political and social conflicts which were taking place in West Germany at that time. The formation of the West German 29er generation had much more to do, to repeat my central argument, with these conflicts than with their recollections of the Second World War or the Third Reich on the whole. In all, um, furthermore, we should also take into regard the quantitative expansion of our discipline. Let me therefore outline some of, outline some of the public and also a number of the historiographical conflicts by which now the 29ers began to shape a common identity amongst themselves in the 1950s or from the 1950s onwards. And this will be a kind of a portrait, a social and cultural portrait of this academic group, my second point. To begin with, it may perhaps be useful to return again briefly to Mannheim's classical work, The Problem of Generations. In it, he clearly states, and this is sometimes overlooked, that generations cannot be regarded as homogeneous entities, but must rather be seen as question-posing entities, collectives, that compete internally to respond to their common experiences. In Mannheim's view, potentially new experiences inherent in a particular generational location, and the German term in this context is Generationslagerung, need to be released. This happens when the relevant people participate in social and intellectual currents at moments of dynamic destabilization in order to mold themselves into generational units, the Generationseinheiten. For a generation to become self-aware, he suggests, it must understand its relationship with preceding cohorts and generations. Now, in the field of German, West German historiography, after 1945, this constellation proved to be of utmost importance, as many members of the child or youth generation of the First World War had compromised themselves deeply during the Nazi years. I have already mentioned Schieder and Konze, but it doesn't take really much effort to identify more candidates of the same age group who collaborated with the Nazi regime in various forms, although the exact Contours of these relationships remained hidden for quite a long time. Whether medievalists such as Otto Brunner and Hermann Heimpel, professors of modern history such as Reinhard Wittram, Günter Franz, Franz Petri, Karl Dietrich Erdmann, my pre-predecessor at the University of Kiel, they are all now known, however belatedly, for their ideological work legitimizing the Nazis 
or much worse, for their anti-Semitic invectives right up to the end of the war. Although this problem was not discussed in public immediately after 1945, many members of the Bündische Jugend, to whom they belonged, the German youth, mo youth movement sorry, of the interwar years, were initially relegated to a second row. In many cases, they themselves preferred to stay in the background until they were offered academic posts at reconstructed universities all over West Germany from the beginning of the 1950s. This also explains why older historians whose academic socialization went back to the late Kaiserreich and who had mostly made a name for themselves in the Weimar years dominated the reconstruction of West German historiography for a considerable length of time after 1945. Examples are, well, Gerhard Ritter, Hans Rothfels, Hans Herzfels, and quite a few more. The dominance of the old men was graphically epitomized by the octogenarian Friedrich Meinecke, who acted as a kind of a figurehead for West Germany's newly democratized historical science. But of course, other factors came into play, resulting in the very special starting position of West German historiography. Members of the Jewish wing of German historiography, who were often, or had been, or in most cases liberal-minded, had either been driven into exile or murdered by the Nazis and their helpers. And many other historians born in the early 1920s had fallen in the war. Therefore, the German 29ers who entered the reopened West German universities during the 1950s found themselves in a situation that was markedly different from that in most other European countries. This is also true of their early post-war experiences in a society which had undergone a complete breakdown, ending up as a kind of a Zusammenbruchsgesellschaft. We do not really know very much about how individual historians were affected by the transformations which took place under the occupying powers. But fortunately enough, we possess a number of published and unpublished memoirs of this time. Karl Ferdinand Werner, who happened uh, to become later on the director of the French of the Paris German Historical Institute, for example, speaks in one of his recollections of the everyday challenges, the Alltagsmühen, the chicanerie, and many privations of these years, while Wheeler was depressed, as he put it in an interview, by the impact of the Nazi trials in Nuremberg and revelations about the Holocaust. And Helga Grebing, one of the few women of this generation who was later to rise up the academic ladder, recalled the state of shock she was in after she had begun to understand the criminal nature of national socialist, the National Socialist regime. Of course, these interventions cannot claim to be representative of a whole academic generation or for all historians. But surely, it is not going too far to speak of a phase of forced intellectual quarantine which turned former members of the Hitler Youth Movement into citizens of a slowly democratized polity. In many cases, allied re-education programs, in particular those who gave some of the younger candidates an opportunity to go abroad, proved to be of great importance, not only in establishing personal contacts with foreign academics, but also, and perhaps even more important, for westernizing their basic political and historiographical outlooks. But this is only one side of the coin, because many of the 45ers who established themselves as professors of history right from the middle of the 1960s and took over the chairs of history happened to be signs of bourgeois families and closely knit academic networks which had survived the Second World War. The Mommsen twin brothers are a case in point. Although their family suffered an acute financial crisis immediately after the war, and the father, Willem, was never allowed to teach again. 
They studied at universities where their academic mentors were in close contact with their father directly after 1945, and he sent them to their new mentors. Wolfgang Mommsen literally was sent to Cologne to take his PhD with Theodor Schieder, and Hans went to Tübingen, where Hans Rothfels was his supervisor, because his father thought that this is a very good idea. Along with other 45ers, they were rapidly integrated into the university education system, which had been reconstructed along more or less traditional lines. They obviously accepted the authority of the academic teachers without really daring to ask what they had done in the preceding period. Their letters of these years, and it sometimes um, it's quite useful simply to read how they address their academic teachers. This is fantastic. How their hochverehrte akademische Lehrer um, is, 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 is sort of um, approached very cautiously in these letters, even though they knew him from their private worlds. Now, um, the letters of these years and perhaps also the photographs, and this is why I put this photo of Wolfgang Mommsen, who's right in the middle of this photo on the back of this handout. This is a photo uh, from 1954, which shows Wolfgang Mommsen right in the middle of it on the platform at the Cologne main station when they said farewell to Thomas and Katja Mann. Thomas Mann had lectured on Felix Krull at the University of Cologne, and the interesting thing is that um, the mentor, on, on the left-hand side, um, you can see Wilhelm Emmerich, a well-known uh, Germanist, or one of the mo most renowned ones who was to rise steeply on the academic ladder. He, he obviously had uh, taken Wolfgang Mommsen with him to say f uh, goodbye to, um, to um, uh, Thomas Mann. And, um, well, the interesting thing in this context is that Wilhelm Emmerich as was found out in the 1990s, was one had worked in the Reichspropaganda Ministerium for quite a long time and uh, had uh, also published many anti-Semitic pamphlets between 1942 to 1944, and apparently nobody had known anything about this before uh, the early 1990s. So Momsen probably wasn't aware of that, but simply to give you the idea of how the youngest became integrated in a completely into the old and traditional university world of that time. And another maybe anecdote, but which maybe clarifies what I'm talking about, is that as late as the 1990s, Wolfgang Mommsen recollected in the interview I mentioned before that he had been in Schieder's service for more than 12 years. By Schieder gedient is the German original. Okay, this will serve my argument, or will be enough for this argument. This more or less automatically then raises the question of how the former members of the Hitler Youth Movement transformed themselves into the pillars of a new political system and a culture whose pivotal intellectual debates began to show much more liberal and even left liberal bias after the middle of the 1960s and then well into the 1970s. And it also raises the issue of how, when and why a relatively small group of the 29ers, and we are speaking of roughly 20 to 25 German historians in West Germany, became a kind of historiographical opinion leader and at the same time public intellectuals who represented West Germany's political culture and historiography at home and abroad. Obviously, the changing political circumstances played an important part but the main trends of German historiography during this phase cannot be attributed only to these overriding changes. In my view, they must be seen as the end product of a complex interplay between political and academic factors, 
which were shaped by generational patterns. This interplay began in the early post-war years when democratization and westernization encouraged the emergence of new political attitudes among the students who were beginning the university studies at that time. During this phase, the stabilization of the political system under the influence of the Cold War and conflicts with the East rapidly made the emotional attachment of the rising generation to the new political system deeper. Economic success and its repercussions on the extension of the university system proved to be of equal importance. As university expansion took place at exactly the time when many of the 29ers were finishing their long drawn out academic socialization, this made them increasingly ready to identify with the Federal Republic and its institutions. To a certain extent, the young historians profited from an academic miracle. Or in Vela's words, those who were born around 1930 received the benefits of an extraordinary phase of expansion. The sheer numbers are indeed impressive. As early as 1973, almost half of the chairs of history were occupied by historians born between 1929 and 1941. And this is also true of many other academic positions, of course. For a long time, the members of this generation of success, as Heinz Bude called them, dominated all sectors of German society, including, of course, the field of historiography. Much of this provides a striking parallel to developments in other countries, in other European countries. Recently, uh, Ilaria Porciani and, and um, Lutz Raphael have edited an atlas of European historiography, and I would refer you to this atlas, because it's wonderful this, to sort of to relive this phase of uh, permanent expansion in academic posts. This is, might, it, might, it, might at least give hope to those who are looking for posts in the academic world. Now, I would not like to, of course, to dwell or hope or despair, whatever you prefer. I would not like to do, dwell on this at this stage, but what is important for us is that in the German case, the expansion helped many of the German 29ers to dissociate themselves from their academic predecessors. And again, other factors came into play, some of them of a political and increasingly also a party political nature. Having witnessed Germany's remilitarization and the staunch anti-communism of its political culture, which was changing very slowly only, they began to become aware of the long-lasting domination of the former Weimar elites and also, of course, the Weimar academic elites. This stirred their rising political criticism of petrified political and institutional structures, and it became common to talk about the verkrustete Strukturen under Konrad Adenauer's chancellorship. They also began an academic revolt against the theoretical and methodological foundations of a seemingly bygone historiography, at least this is what Wolfgang Mommsenfeld had been the essence of his own academic work since the 1950s, to put forward radical question, as he said, and he argued to put an end once and for all to, and I quote Wolfgang Mommsen, an end to suggestive and irrational rhetoric of historicism, which was solely based on the principle of humanoidic understanding, unquote. Several key texts mark this major shift away from the old pattern, the old praise of Germany's peculiarities, which had been part and parcel of a traditional approach until well into the Third Reich, to pave now the way for a new and highly critical description of the German Sonderweg. The turn began in the 1950s, right in the middle of the 1950s, with Karl Dietrich Brachers' influential study of the dissolution of the Weimar Republic, to be followed by Kurt Sontheimer's Antidemokratisches Denken in the Weimar Republic, published in 1962, 
Hermann Lübbes Politische Philosophie in Deutschland, 1963, and Ralf Dahrendorf's book Gesellschaft and Demokratie in Deutschland, 1965. These were the key texts which have been read again and again, quoted again and again. And perhaps it is also legitimate to mention Mommsen's biography of Weber, first published in 1959. It fits nicely into this group because as well as being a pioneering and much quoted work of intellectual history, this study provoked a considerable public controversy about the meaning of Weber's concept of charismatic leadership for the interpretations of Hitler's later rise to power. One of the particularly interesting points for our discussion today is that the heated academic and political debates about this book came to a head at the German sociologists meeting in Heidelberg in 1964, which was fully imbued with generational emotions. Mommsen, Lapsius and many other 29ers were confronted by a phalanx of well-established figures from the two preceding academic generations who tried hard to keep Weber's reputation free from any of the taints which Mommsen had identified in his biography. It is also noteworthy that most of the discussions focused on the meaning of the presidential dictatorship in the last phase of the Weimar Republic. Mommsen's remarks in his biography had obviously turned the knife in the wound of an established interpretation which had made Weber an intellectual figurehead without regard to the problematic side of his political theory. Now, all this helped to bring about a kind of a or the understanding of a generational mission among the 29ers. In this sense, Immanuel Geis maintained that many German students of my age were driven by the search for the underlying cause of what Meinecke called the German catastrophe. And Christian Krokow, mentioned above, put it in a similar way. It should, as far as we could do anything about it, never happen to others again. Now, all these missionary statements, there are hundreds of them from this uh, generation. From the early 1960s to the end of the 1980s, this situation gave rise to a series of historiographical controversies in which a particularly energetic group of historians amongst the 29ers began to identify themselves as a circle which shared similar political ideals and a number of generational theoretical views in promoting a kind of a common project which aimed to modernize historical research. The controversies over Fritz Fischer's book Griff nach der Weltmacht from 1961 represented only the first pivotal encounter which clearly positioned many of the younger historians in opposition to their former academic mentors. And this was to become typical of many of the ensuing political and historiographical debates. Just think of the notorious scandal about the magazine Der Spiegel in 1962, the Jaspers debates in the middle of the 1960s, which centered on the existence of two German nation states and the consequences which were to be taken or to be drawn from this new state and the much more academic and long-lasting discussions about Bismarck's role in history, the meaning of the revolution of 1918-19. These were accompanied by very pronounced political interventions in West Germany's new policy towards the East, the Neue Ostpolitik, under the chancellorship of Willy Brandt, later to be followed by major historical political debates about the foundation of a German National History Museum, which ran right through the 1980s, and of course the historical Streit about Ernst Neuter's infamous Auschwitz thesis. On the whole, these controversies regularly positioned a group of left liberal historians, several of whom had co-founded the journal Geschichte und Gesellschaft as their new organ in 1975, against a number of more or less right liberal or conservative-minded historians. Numerically, the strength of both camps was more or less the same. We are speaking again of roughly 20 to 25 historians on each side. 
and each was backed by a much larger but usually silent group of supporters. Now, we do not have the time, of course, to go into the details of individual controversies, but this does not matter. What is more important is that, firstly, they instituted an almost uninterrupted series of public debates which laid the foundation for a kind of a post-war democratic historical identity in West Germany, largely formed under the influence of the 29ers. Secondly, they demonstrated that because of the specific character of academic elite formation in West Germany, this generation exerted a formative influence for a considerable length of time. Basically, it lasted for more than two and a half decades. Thirdly, the media and its expansion played a very important part in this period, especially as many of the 29ers built up very close relationships with journalists and, of course, publishers, giving them an opportunity to reach a wider or a wide readership. Fourthly, this very long era saw far-reaching changes in historiographical practices and also general outlooks. For example, the Freiburg historian Ernst Schulin, one of the few 29ers who made sophisticated attempts to arrive at a nuanced version, a nuanced evaluation of the old and the new historicism contributed the term Traditionskritik to the current debates. And Thomas Nipperdai, who with some irony began to call himself a semi-historicist, proclaimed that all contemporary history needed to be oppositional in its general stance and thus turn away from the politically affirmative attitudes of so many of its predecessors. In my view, this can be regarded as the core idea which provided a common moral ground for most of the 29ers, although many of them began to take different party political positions in the wake of the global upheavals of 1968 and the assault by some 68ers on the legitimacy of the Federal Republic. But interestingly enough, the general political divisions amongst the 29ers did not affect their common belief in the basic political tenets, tenets which had dominated their westernization immediately after the war. Thus, representative democracy, the social market economy, intellectual pluralism and Westbindung remained the basic political beliefs of this group. But to be sure, there was also much internal strife. And this increased, and we all know what it was about over the years. Historiographically, these differences were translated, as it were, into a series of bitter feuds, perhaps you could say Ersatzkriege, historiographical Ersatzkriege, about the potentials of social, political and cultural history. In West Germany, these temporarily led to the strange impression that social history represented modern history, whereas political history had passed its time. And this is one of the obvious dichotomies um, which went parallel to many others, especially when we look into diverse, more specialized fields, such as, for example, the study of imperial Germany or the study of the Third Reich. You always find these dichotomies between moral camps within the 29ers. Of course, many of the repercussions of these debates were quite positive because they strengthened the pluralistic character of West Germany's recent historiography. But often the main actors continued to claim academic or even moral superiority over their opponents, and that has remained characteristic of the West German or, later on, the common German discourse. In this sense, the 29ers remained firmly in the tradition of their predecessors. The same is true of the values which many had been imbued with by their families and a protective process of academic socialization. It may be a coincidence, but in my opinion it is not that most of the 29er historians of modern German history stopped short 
at the chronological boundary at which their personal political socialization had begun. They prefer to deal extensively with the history of imperial Germany and in part also with the political history of the Weimar Republic, but that is where their interest stopped, with very few exceptions. Okay, I will try to now to embed all this, what I've tried to say, in a very rough sketch of uh, some developments, not only in West Germany, but also in East Germany and other countries in Europe. From a bird's eye view, many developments which I have identified as typical of the West German 29ers reflected similar stages and tendencies abroad. This has to do partly with the considerable quantitative expansion of the historical field. I think also David Kennedine has spoken of a golden age of uh, British historiography between 1950 and the 1970s, even though uh, underlining a very critical or adding a very critical view of this economic and academic miracle. Now, this has, this, this, these parallels had a lot to do with, these, with, uh, with the quantitative expansion and the ongoing professionalization of our discipline, which more often than not led to a strong influx of sociological theories and the demand in many national historiographies for more scientific approaches. Interestingly enough, this was also firmly grounded in specific generational experiences and academic patterns that bridged West Germany's eastern and western borders. Thus, in the German Democratic Republic, and here I borrow from Mary Fulbrook's instructive essays in the volume on Momsen, members of the war youth generation of the First World War, such as Jürgen Kuczynski, Ernst Engelberg, who had been convinced partisans of the communist movement before 1939, paved the way for the construction of a new history of the new socialist society after the end of the war. This new history was to represent a clear alternative to the continuities and unmastered pasts in the West. The East German 45ers, or rather the 29ers, as Mary calls them, grew up in the shadow of these anti-fascist founding fathers or remained emotionally strongly attached to them, which seems to me quite a striking parallel to what was happening in the West, though obviously in a completely different political environment. The members of this generation, which includes, for example, Ingrid Mittenzwei, Kurt Petzold, but perhaps also Hans Schleier, Olaf Gröhler, and others, became adults on the threshold of the GDR, and along with many representatives of the same age group, they developed a striking political commitment to the state and its political system. This was just as pronounced as that developed by Western historians of the same age, who became, as I said, staunch supporters of their as they regarded it, more open society. Apart from this pronounced political partisanship, other parallels between the two Germanies are striking. The East German counterparts of the West German 29ers also managed to build a lasting influence in working out the new socialist master narratives. Moreover, they established a close relationship with functionaries in politics and economy, which mirrored similar patterns in the West. In both cases, this meant that their respective historiographies had a wide public resonance in their respective systems. And although both camps were engaged in delegitimizing the opposite side, they could not avoid constantly paying attention to each other. This led to a specific kind of an east-west structure of argument, which was to become typical of German historiography, however asymmetrical symmetrical it happened to be in specific cases. But the political circumstances, to be sure, left indelible marks on both sides. Here time permits me to mention only two major points. The first is that the generational mission of the 45ers in the East 
did not lead to the same soul-searching attempts to uncover the roots of the Nazi past as their Western brethren felt it was necessary. Obviously, this was encouraged by an official party ideology which attempted to externalize, as it were, the negative heritage of the recent German past and project it onto the capitalist system in the West. Second, West German historiography stood apart not only from its East German counterpart, but from all its Eastern and Western neighbors, in that it maintained a clear distance, and I think we can't, uh, uh, this, is, this has to be underlined a lot, it maintained a clear distance to anything smacking of Marxism. In this respect, the comparison with other European countries is quite revealing. This also becomes clear in a comparison with the Anglophone world, where some Marxist historians rose to the top of the British academic world in this generation, and you know these colleagues better than I do. But the French and Italian historiography presents perhaps an even more convenient example. In France, the global collapse of capitalism had made Marxism attractive to many French intellectuals as early as in the 1930s. But after the Second World War, it grew even more influential in historical circles because of socialism's and communism's opposition to fascism in the 30s and 40s. This situation evoked a strong echo among the French 45ers or the French 29ers, just Again, a couple of names, Maurice Agulon, Emmanuel Leroy-Ladiri, Pianora, and of course, and above all, François Ferré. They all, in my eyes, would represent very interesting case studies to put them sort of in, in a parallel study to what I was talking about in the West German case. In Italy, we may mention, for example, Renzo de Felice, or the representative of the Catholic laicist school in a very queer combination, Pietro Scopola, or the younger Nicola Tronfaglia. Many of these had been or were members of the Communist Party for quite a long time. Many of them turned their backs on it after the failed Hungarian Revolution in 1956. Thus, for example, De Felice who, um, was one among the 100 Italian intellectuals who sharply criticized the Italian Communist Party for backing the Soviets. All this, of course, was having far-reaching historiographical repercussions, which didn't happen or which simply weren't there in the west of Germany. In De Felice's case, the former member of the Partito Comunista Italiana turned into a modest defender of Mussolini's early fascism, which he regarded as the outcome of the social desires of the rising middle classes. This did not remain uncriticized, not at all, especially by historians who had fought in the resistance movement, such as, for example, Claudio Pavone. And there were many other, others who staunchly opposed De Felice's view, but this was one of the major and salient points of the discussion between various camps of the 29ers in Italy. Now, please allow me to finish this very rudimentary comparison, which in my eyes, as I said before, merits much deeper investigation because this would allow us to identify much more convincing European parallels and differences. But it should, however, perhaps, and so I hope, have become clear that neither disgust or admiration represents adequate foundations for a, dis a distance analysis of the achievements and perhaps also the failures of the 29 historians. What is characteristic of West German histori historiography under their aegis may be summarized as follows. Firstly, the historiography of this generation reveals a close relationship between personal experiences and academic interests and research fields. Of course, this is not typical only of these birth cohorts, but under the influence of the Cold War, it became a very pronounced relationship. 
The integration of West and East Germany into larger political blocs led to a high degree of politicization in their respective historical writings. Similar political divisions can be observed in the French and Italian case, but at no stage, it seems to me, did they reach the same intensity as in West and East Germany. Secondly, numerous 29ers in East and West Germany and its neighboring European countries not only became professional historians, but also assumed the role of public intellectuals. This can be partly be explained by their particular narrative strategies, which apparently satisfied the needs of a large readership at a time when the tone of historical writing changed considerably. But we should also take into account the role of publishers and the general expansion of the media market on the whole. With its help, many 29ers were able to make a name for themselves or even to turn themselves into brands, which conferred great authority to pronounce on the state of public affairs. Thirdly, the concentration of, on the history of their own nation-state stands out in the writing of most West German historians from the ranks of the 29ers. Even though many protested, they wanted to achieve something completely else. Just read the introductory remarks by Joachim Leuchner in one of the most famous history series on German history in the publisher, uh, published by Van den Hoek and Ruprecht in the 1970s. There it says, this is the first German history which tries to distance itself from the old type of German history. And where did they end up? In the old way of writing German history in a very national perspective. Now, I, di I didn't mention this example by saying, or by, 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 sort of cl by claiming that this ended as an outright failure. Rather, I think it would be our task, and it will be our task, to embed these results and these problematic results in a context in which the nation-state had been rescued after the Second World War. And perhaps, and this is my last and final remark, this should also make us a bit wary of all the numerous present-day calls to write transnational history only, because, as it turns out, this may be a bit more difficult than it actually sounds when it is sort of mentioned in the public. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you um, very much for that. We do have time for questions, as I said, and, you know, just tell me who you are. And, um, but before um, I ask for questions, I just wondered, um, well, two points, really. One was when you talked about the versäumte Fragen, um, and I just wondered, well, who actually would ask their supervisor a really difficult question like that anyway? I mean, I can't imagine any of us, you know, delving deeply, you know, if we were in mm. that situation. So it mm. seems... You know, to some extent, a bit unfair. We can all remember being about 19 and you know being just overwhelmed. And I'm sure when Vela was sent up to Freiburg, he was completely overwhelmed, presumably. Mm -hmm. But what I actually wanted um, to ask, because I'm very interested in the idea that there was an in uninterrupted series of debates, um, obviously after 1945. And I wondered to what extent that is, because German history is just so difficult to come to terms with, and to what extent. It's about actually the German university system and the dependency on, some, on one's supervisor. You can't have a career unless you, you really are hand in glove with your supervisor. So once these camps are entrenched, there's really no way out. You've kind of got to be fighting on the side of political history or on the side of social history because if you decide, well, actually, even though I've learned social history, what really rocks my boat is military history, you're really in trouble in the German system. So you were just... in trouble. Yeah. Well, you were, yes. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. 
Well, as to your first question, which wasn't a question, but it's quite an important remark, of course, because you're talking about academic cultures and structures and hierarchies, after all. And, well, the problem in this, or about the 29ers, is that they were perhaps just as courageous as we are or aren't. I mean, that's probably a very, very similar, similar result in the end. But the important thing which may, where they differentiate from the generation which um, was there before and those maybe who came after them is that they sort of tainted a different, different image of themselves. And this is why I mentioned this, this, this point. Uh, and this, this gave or was part, partly um, one of the reasons why um, there was so much, such an emotional outburst at the Frankfurt meeting because all these historians had always said that they had something done completely different and then it turned out that they hadn't and therefore this was a kind of a finding or a realization on the part of many that uh, many of the respective academic teachers uh, maybe were not just as courageous as they had uh, tainted them or had, had um, thought they had been in the years before. Um, and the other question, well, is German historiography different in sort of carrying out a constant series, or was it different in carrying out uh, a constant series of historiographical debates where participants more or less were forced to side either on the one side or the other? I don't think so, because wherever you look, also into the Italian case or the French case, also there, historians, well, that's part of our business, sort of, to to, find, to, to um, argue out a position and then to decide where somebody think, thinks um, um, the, the right argument um, <clears throat> or who, who's, who's sort of um, presenting the best argument. Um, the problem in the German case is this, and this is what I said uh, in the middle of my talk, is this interplay between political, historiographical and maybe also more or less, as you said, university-structured conflicts. And this is a bit more perhaps typical of, or it was typical of the West German case, because this is where politics normally in the university world played a much larger role than it did or it does in Britain, at least this is my impression. And this is not only the case because West Germany was particular, but because this was the German tradition. German professors, German professors of history had to cite also according to specific political or on the basis of political arguments. It was not only a, an academic debate. It never was, neither in the Weimar Republic or, in the, of course, not in the Third Reich. And so it continued to be, uh, after 1945, against a completely different background, of course, uh, the East-Western differences. I hope that this was a kind of a, an answer to your question.
1929 or so, 1945, is because we have studies now not only about academics, most are about professors, uh, like um, mm. uh, the Moses study or others that you cited, um, but we also have studies talking about the police, about army generals, about the media, um, and it seems to me um, that, for example, in the media, um, this generation uh, shared some of the um, of the main ideas that you mentioned, orientation towards the West and uh, mm. democratization um, and so on. On the other hand, and, and also kind of critical view of the Sonderweg without trying to really confront the perpetrators. Mm. Um, but then on the other hand, it seems to me that in academia, um, the uh, 45ers were a lot more traditionally oriented and kind of more hesitant than, for example, in the media, uh, probably because the German, um, the West German academic system was um, less reconstructed, reconstructed yeah. more traditional, uh, kept more of its traditional features longer on. Um, I, it also seems to me that in, uh, in West German universities, the 1968ers and the 1945ers had a much stronger clash than in other areas of society which we see Well, as to your second question, yes. <laughs> it is maybe as simple as that, because these were very structured systems, very much, well, you have, as I all, all know in this room, you have, you have worked on the media, and this world is, or this job market is completely different to the university job market, and the hierarchies are exerted on, on, on a different, in a different way and on different levels in a different way. The German university system in the 1950s and 60s was, as I tried to insinuate with some of these remarks by Schieder Gedeen and so on and so forth, were quasi, in a, and I put it in a military, in a military way. So and that, that, that goes back to, this, um, to, to your question. Uh, we, we are talking about academic cultures where hierarchies were very pronounced and where they knew what their academic teachers, or that they... Uh, looked up to literally to their academic teachers, and I don't think that this was or can be compared to what was happening in other fields. Even though um, the interesting thing would be to look a bit more in detail as to how far the media market or other non-academic or academic and non-academic fields absorbed the discussions of historians or other academic disciplines into their own presentations. And I think there are quite some graphic and very good examples that this happened quite often. So there was an interchange between the two, and we shouldn't sort of draw too sharp a line between these different markets. And as to your first question about why is there a difference between, or should we really draw a difference or a line between the 29ers and the wider group of the 45ers, I think we should. In a historiographical uh, perspective, that makes sense. It makes sense because... Um, they presented their arguments in different styles. Just think of Rudolf Vierhaus, Reinhard Koselleck, so all those born in the early or before the middle of the 1920s. Their way of present, presenting their own arguments and of in, sort of reflecting their own experience uh, which they had undergone during the Second World War was completely different to what Wähler and all the others did in the 1950s, 60s and also in the 1970s. 
Um, and, and the other thing is that there's quite an um, exceptional diverge between the two, as, because, um, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, the fact that they, at least some of them, also very famous ones, who became famous with these studies, began to work and to study and to research into the Second World War. And none of the 29ers, as far, with the exception of maybe Klaus-Jürgen Müller, did this. So there must have been something which geared them on the basis of these personal experiences into different directions. And therefore, I would plead for this, uh, to, to hold to this argument. Thank you. Um, Mike, thank you. Um, thank you very much for the paper. I have a question about the way in which you've organized your observations. It seemed to me that the, the spectrum of opinion and positions that you've presented is very much organized in terms of how these people related to something that was a very big organizational category that you never really problematized, and that is a kind of Nazi view of history. So what you've described is how people relate to the degrees of involvement of their academic fathers with the regime. You've mentioned that some of these people published anti-Semitic pamphlets and so on. And I wonder whether an attached way of thinking about some of this would be to think not of a kind of Nazi or Nazified history vis-a-vis -vis this later generation positions itself in more or less critical or self-conscious ways, but to think of this as, as, as a kind of number of competing strands of thinking about history that run through the Third Reich. They are shaped by it, but they are not invented by it and they are not homogenized by it. Um, and the reason is that is, I think, in particular, the role of social history. And so I think one of the problems here was, was the categories of kind of right and left or left liberal hyphenated um, adjectives is that it doesn't really allow us to come to grips with this problem that in this third life, on the one hand, we have a form of, of conservative historicism that comes out of a kind of nationalistic, high-political tradition that carries on in the historical Zeitschrift um, throughout these years and becomes more or less Nazified, very affirmative of the state, during the Third Reich, but then you have, of course, other projects that connect to different aspects of the National Socialist regime um, and often take a very, you know, very different stance than the kind of stuff that was published in the HZ. So the whole tradition of Volksgeschichte, um, the tradition of Stammesgeschichte, um, which makes it disciplinary links with archaeology, which looks at people's um, ordinary lives, which with material culture and, 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 and that kind of thing, which in many ways shaped the kind of project of progressive social history that emerges in post-Thomas Germany, but has methodological links to something that during the Third Reich was, 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 was conducted with sometimes quite limited methodologies, but also, of course, very racial overt undertones. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether there's an alternative way of telling the story of, of continuity and conflict. Well, there are always alternatives. I mean, that's part of a pluralistic uh, system we are in these days. But to be more precise, um, and you probably, well, you definitely know that this debate has been going on for now, well, 10 to 15 years, quite intensively, on the links between various traditions of German historiography, be it before 1933 or during 1933, with the so-called Volksgeschichte, which you mentioned in your question or in your argument, and uh, the later rise of, let's say, social, modern social or structural, strukturgeschichte approach after 1945. And as you well know, there are, this debate has been going on and it hasn't come to a conclusion. 
because there are very good arguments in favour, if I understand your side correctly, to argue in favour of very strong continuities from both periods of German historiography, so from the Weimar period and its Landes and Volksgeschichts foundation right to the 1950s and 60s and the emergence of the concertype of, of new social history. But there are others, as Cocker and the Bielefelders above all have argued, who um, have found different lineages, the American lineage, Hans Rosenberg, and so on and so forth. And both are right, in my view. Of course, they were all there in the West German camp after 1945. And Konzen maybe was one of the most diligent ones to combine the two uh, major traditions of German social history writing. Um, but um, in the end... Um, well, that was not one one of the major points of interest I was talking about today, and I, I, I would still plead in favour also of sort of accepting this as one possible strategy of trying to come to terms with some of the results I mentioned. This, this the result that most of the 29ers at least regarded themselves as a vanguard for modernising and restructuring a sterile political history. And in what, what did they end up with in uh, the 1960s? It was mainly a kind of tradition fostered above all by Theodor Schieder, partly also by Konze and many of the other well-known so-called founding fathers, which uh, had argued in favor of a politica, politische Sozialgeschichte. And that was it, a very specific German, it seems to me, type of approach, but which, which remained dominant for the 1960s and 70s before a then new generation uh, ventured to um, come up with completely new ideas um, in connection with Alltagsgeschichte and similar approaches. But I, I don't think that the Volksgeschichte argument should be made too strong, because most of those who had been working in this camp or in this field before 1945 either turned completely away for obvious reasons in working um, in, in carrying out research after 1945, or um, they did, uh, or if they continued to do so, they did so in a very covered way, so that the continuities didn't become apparent to most of the readers and students, at least of the 1950s and 60s. And therefore, I don't think that the continuities should be emphasised too much, from my interpretation. Yes, thank you very much, Kastor, for what I thought was, on the whole, a very convincing portrayal of this 45 generation or 29 generation. Mm. I was just wondering in, if, if, I mean, if we introduce maybe sort of modest doses of uh, Bourdieu into the picture mm. and look at the kind of uh, field of history, or look at history as a field and mm. look at the kind of habitus, mm. uh, which you, you have also done in your mm. uh, remarks uh, now without specifically mentioning Bourdieu, then you keep wondering, when, at least I kept wondering when I listened to you, this generational self-positioning, the attack on uh, historicism, the endorsement of sociology, the strong pedagogical mm. perspective on Vergangenheitsbewältigung, in how much this was part and parcel of a kind of strategy of reaching a kind of dominance over that field and, and sort of creating a kind of a distance, a habitus, which would allow them to dominate that field. 
And in some respects, that kind of striving for, for dominance underlines the lack of westernization of that 45 generation, mm. underlines, I think, the continuities to the older generation. Um, and the whole adoption mm. of Kuhn's idea of paradigm shifts also has that same kind of uh, emphasis on thinking in terms of uh, right and wrong, thinking in terms of dominance, um, thinking in mm. terms of defeating an enemy mm. uh, and disallowing a kind of pluralization, mm. which I think, as you also said, only really reaches German historiography in the 1980s and 1990s. Well, thank you, uh, Stefan, for referring our attention to Bourdieu. Of course, his remarks or his ideas are always very helpful, especially when we try to uncover strategies such as um, dominating, as you said, a field or um, exerting power over others and things like that. And obviously, this is always also part. Uh, this is part and parcel also of academic exchanges. And uh, this is what all of the participants in Frankfurt admitted that they were doing this at that time. For example. But I, I would hesitate, or would be very resistant to reduce historiographical debates of the kinds I presented today simply to, or mainly, to, the, or the, to this aspect. Um, because uh, maybe, to put it quite bluntly, Germans always need a mission. Um, and also German historians always need a mission. And this is what, they, what many of the 29ers felt and still feel, that, for example, Wheeler still feels he is sort of carrying out a mission, otherwise we probably will never understand how he managed to write five volumes on German Gesellschaftsgeschichte as a single author. But having this, this idea of really coming to terms with some of the well, most gruesome aspects of German history sort of made him and many of his age group sort of advance for a long time and uh, to present their arguments as a kind of a new and also um, not simply new, but a modern and necessary revision of what uh, they had encountered when they were a student at uh, West German universities. And for that reason, I, I would com at least combine these approaches. And as I said, Bourdieu is good, but maybe not good enough to really explain why they had this very strong urge and why this remained such a strong urge over such a long time. Uh, yes, uh, just a short remark on, on the... Mannheim's idea of mm. generations that you used so brilliantly, and uh, then a real question, uh, which we battled with in Göttingen for a while now and really didn't come clear on. Um, one is, and as Stefan just mentioned, uh, it is clear that Mannheim's idea of generation really is about intellectual mm. elites, and in that respect, you're perfectly free to use it for that particular purpose. The mm. uh, problem is, of course, as we know, that uh, this is itself a historicistic problem mm. of the 1920s uh, and his notion of generations of course heavily biased mm. towards male elite intellectual in groups. Mm. But now exactly that's what you're talking about. Mm. You're not talking about the 29 generation or the 45ers. You're talking about what Oliveira himself calls a strategic clique. Mm. That's what it is. Okay. And, and, and the issue at mm. stake is really cultural hegemony in a very circumscribed sort of intellectual field. Mm. Um, I like this idea about habitus, you know, pushing for it. And if you, if you look at uh, Uli's uh, stuff, it's quite clear that he, at the time, never had the idea that he was leading the field. He was always saying, you know, uh, our generation, they haven't, uh, they haven't learned the lessons. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, the 29ers haven't learned the lessons. We are just a group that, that advise for intellectual hegemony in that group. Uh, so, in that respect, I think it is very uh, wise to use uh, that notion of intellectual hegemony, or we call it Pregnanzbildung, mm. uh, where you can actually see that networking uh, approaches are equally valuable. Uh, and don't uh, mistake it for, you know, what also uh, is in the concept of generations, and that is, you know, what Chelsky meant about the skeptical generation and so on. They are not speaking for that cultural shift in a sense of belonging that cuts across all classes, all groups, and so on. Uh, and if we accept that, um, I think it comes out quite clearly, and as you said, that it's not the particular experience of these people that molded their generational sense of belonging. It is a particular political stake, a mission, you see. Uh, and also the circumstantial evidence about the expansion of the field, that's the same for the media, by the way, uh, that actually produces a chance to lay a new claim. Uh, and that's actually what's happening. But it's not, and, and that's where we are really in, in difficulties, uh, it's not enough to explain uh, what makes the change of belonging into a Zeitheimer for a generation in, a term, in, in terms of a cultural change. Mm -hmm. uh, and that leads me to my real question. We've been looking at uh, this um, generational rhetoric and strategies um, and in, in the, uh, in the uh, uh, book on Generationen in the introduction there is a, a deconstruction of that generational discourse that Olivella uses for the 45ers. And it is, to my mind, it is not just that they are not basically driven by their experience, but by a particular political conflict that was happening at that time under, under given conditions. Uh, but also that they may be driven by what I would call generation envy. Because when it happened, when the talk came about about the 45ers, it was really a backlash against the talk about the 68ers. So when you look at it historically, uh, I mean, Uli, Uli is quite clear, he never talked about himself as a generation before. Uh, but, you know, as a counterclaim to the 68ers talk, it was actually a strategy that kept home uh, and was quite successful. And we cannot, I, I, I'm still at, at loss to explain, um, how we can uh, find a way of understanding that kind of generation building ex post mm. and not in terms of historical experience that drives the whole process. Okay, um, perhaps just a short remark as to your first comment, I think, which was really pertinent. And as, as well, I said this in my talk, you, you have been working with your students for quite a long time on this problem and therefore. Um, we should sort of integrate this very important term of Erzählgemeinschaft, narrating or the narratives about generations into our discussion about these groups. And this leads now to a very provisional answer to your complicated question. Uh, I think perhaps if we try to differentiate three major developments or fields where generations may sort of root, find their roots or try to um, at least um, find points for self-assertion. The one is the field of, of concrete experiences. And uh, as, as we all know, these change over time. 
and especially over ruptures, political ruptures such as 1945, and therefore we shouldn't really put an, an, uh, too high an emphasis on this field. The second point is what we might call uh, the kind of um, becoming self-aware of this belonging to a certain uh, group. Uh, and as I try to show in my talk, I think this is a quite a complicated process over the 1950s right into the 1970s for this specific group of the 29ers, which may be understood as a kind of a mixture of political, academic, and again, wider cultural um, impacts, which somehow molded this self-assertion into a specific direction. And then they, they the 29ers, began to talk about themselves as a group. So that, that, that's the second field. And the third field is the one you mentioned um, in the end. This is, well, our discussion when it started in the 1980s, our discussion, I mean the whole academic discussion about the phenomenon of generations. And this sort of fueled all attempts of the 29ers to assert themselves as a group, be it in competition with other generations or cohorts or whatever you prefer. Um, and um, while ending up with this quite intensive mode of self-reflection, and Wheeler maybe again is a good case in point, because in the beginning he resisted in, in sort of um, um, accepting this, this epitome of being a member of the 1945ers. And then slowly it, sort of dawned, it seemed as if it had dawned on him that maybe this is quite a useful category to understand his own historiographical approach. And then in the Gesellschaftsgeschichte you find a reference to his generation. And there we are. I mean, this, is, this was quite a long-drawn process. You know that better than I do. Uh, and I think if we sort of try to bring together these three fields, we may understand a lot better how generations mold, even though they are construed entities. Okay. Thank you. I've got two more, Anna and Stefan, and then it is um, nearly time for the reception of that. So unless anyone has a really urgent question, we'll just take these last two, if that's okay. Well, my question actually um, builds on Van builds on Bicycles in some way. Um, your talk actually made me wonder about a similar, or actually very different attempt to chart a generation of historians by Rosh Dangalese's interviews with mm. these people born in 1943. And um, I mean, the main thing they seem to have in common with yours is that they're all men. Um, but um, but otherwise, I mean, it's a very different kind of result that, that she's coming to in the end, namely that they don't really have a generational mission. Mm -hmm. because it includes medievalists and all sorts of people not working on the 19th and 20th century. There's much less of a, I guess, a, a kind of a content or a similarity in terms of the kinds of questions they're asking. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just, I mean, you obviously took a conscious group that. Um, surfaces in public debates and, and sort of defines itself, at least partly as public intellectuals as well, um, as your starting point. And just wondering whether you ever thought about doing it, do it, doing it kind of the other way around, looking at a broader spectrum of people being born at, at a particular moment in time who enter the historical profession, um, and whether maybe the results you would have come to would have been quite, quite different just as a kind of thought experiment, because it is really exactly the opposite way mm. of looking at generation, not the self-conscious, but really mm. the kind of Wanted to test birth, birth cohort approach. Yeah, I admit to sort of um, uh, approaching quite traditionally in, in my, my my way because that that's the old way of thinking about political generations. Uh, but I admit to um, at least uh, doing this quite consciously um, because I think uh, 
that many or most of those whom I've quoted today, um, and that was not just the, the case with Hans Ulrich Wheeler, but almost all, at a certain stage in their life began to regard themselves as members of specific cohorts. And this is my source. And this is what we also do as historians. We try to sort of pay some respect to this language of what contemporaries thought they were or the way the ways they describe themselves without accepting this as a hard and fast rule which we can't sort of deconstruct again. And therefore this, this volume which you mentioned might be a second and interesting approach. The Jahrgang 1943, uh, quite an interesting book. But in the end, um, and Dipper has summed this up, um, on the one hand they disclaim any, any idea that they sort of might form a generation of their own. But if you sort of read their interviews very closely and try to come up in the end with a well, perspective to sum, up what, to sum up what most of them characterizes, I'm afraid I would continue to call them not a 40... What, what's, what would be the name? The first post-war political generation, but a generation which uh, obviously had many, many characteristics in common because they, were, they grew up in, well, under the aegis of this or in very close collaboration to um, the academics or historians I mentioned today and obviously this, this has sort of exerted some influence on their not simply academic socialization but also on the way they began to write history. And therefore it seems to me that maybe um, the, the obvious postulate or the, 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 the quite stark postulate at the end of the book that this is not a generation may be a wrong end of the book. And uh, at least this is, I, I do have a, or do, I, I do, I, when I read the book I felt, well, this is quite interesting because this is exactly <laughs> what they are in the end, what they are trying to, not, trying not to say, interestingly enough, in contrast to what Wheelers and their, the preceding generation of, um, prefer to do. Therefore, I would stick to my approach but not saying that this is the only possible way of arriving at um, maybe interesting results. My question was also on the usefulness of the concept of um, generations, but it's been asked in different ways um, just now. So okay. Well, if, if anyone else has a question. Otherwise, um, could I thank you please on behalf of everyone for a really very interesting lecture. Mm-hmm.